Hello and welcome to The Art of Self-Belief, hosted by me, Estella Edwards. This podcast is about the power of self-belief. What you think about is what you become. And this podcast will teach you how you can overcome the challenges you may face in your life and career. With over 30 years of experience in passionately championing women and diversity in the workplace, it felt only right to create a platform where we can hear from women who excel in their field. And I'll be chatting to them about their triumphs and how they've navigated the obstacles along their path to success. My signature programme, The Art of Self-Belief with Estella Edwards, is all about helping women to learn and develop the mindset, skills and tools necessary to lead from within. I celebrate the incredible achievements of women in leadership, covering the wide breadth of intergenerational industry experience. With the help of my inspiring guests, The podcast will shed light on how to implement self-belief in a modern world. So listen out for some key tips, tricks and anecdotes to help you do just that. So let's get started. And today we have with us Inez Brown. Inez, your story has really inspired me your podcast, your journey. But for those who don't know you, who are you and what has your journey been like? Okay, Estella, thank you for inviting me to take part in your podcast. You've already said my name. My name is Inez Brown. Would you believe my name means wise one? I hated my name when I was younger, but I've grown to really, really um, love it. Um, My journey, where do I begin? Um, I come from a family of seven, well, came from a family of seven. Sadly, two of my sisters passed away Mm -hmm. in 2014. And although um, my mum was a single parent, we had a very loving, happy childhood. We had such fun together as children. But my mother always taught us um, to strive and for the best, and aim high. Uh, We couldn't afford to buy books, so what she would do is give us the Bible to read, and we had to read it from cover to cover. So we learnt English, and we learnt about grammar, and we'd just have fun together. And from a very, very early age, although we grew up on a council estate, at no point did I ever think that we didn't have enough We didn't have enough, but at no point was I made to feel that we didn't have enough. And as a result, from about the age of 12, I knew that I wanted to become a solicitor, maybe a barrister um, one day. And I think that the dream began when I was at primary school and I went to a friend's house. And at the time, there was a show called 
Crown Court yes. on television. Telling your age. Oh, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was so interesting. And I would sit there and watch these men in what I called robes and strange wigs. Yes. And when they interpreted the law and they were able to get their client off who they were defending, I thought, that's what I want to do. Um, and so I started to read books about barristers and that was the dream for me. That's where it first started. Um, I went to a school where not many children, I'm not sure of anyone that I know in my year um, or above me who became a um, solicitor or a barrister. So the teachers didn't really encourage us to do that, but they were supportive and I was really, really pleased that that was my journey and that I was at the right school to start my journey. Wow. So the seed was sown about self-belief. Yes. So what would you actually describe self-belief as? Because that was a wonderful story about your journey and what I could hear and feel was how your mom taught you to read the word of God as well as your grammar and all that you learned. And so through that, obviously the seed was sown around self-belief. So my question now is, what what is self-belief just for our audience? Self-belief is um, having a goal, something that you aspire to and believing that you can achieve it no matter what and not being discouraged by negativity. So you sometimes will share your dream with friends or acquaintances and they try to discourage you. But self-belief is holding on to that goal aspiration not letting go no matter what and to have self-belief you've got to have confidence confidence is something that you don't just get overnight it's something that you learn um, and it is a journey and I've had a journey in relation to confidence but once you grow your confidence and believe in yourself um, there's nothing that can stop you. There are three people who have been extremely influential in my life. My mother, um, my French teacher, and also my husband. And I think I shared with you um, when we spoke earlier that um, I always wanted to be accepted by everyone that I met. And if you didn't accept me, I felt as though I'd failed and it was, uh, my confidence was very, very low. And um, I remember talking to uh, my husband, he was my partner at the time, and he said to me, why do you need people to affirm you? Why don't you just believe in yourself, accept yourself, and those around you in your immediate circle, they will then be supportive of you. But until you believe in yourself and accept yourself, you actually won't make it. And I realised that was something that I needed to hold on to, um, learn to accept myself, believe in myself. And that's where the, when the confidence grew. So let's just unpick that a little because that's uh, affirmation and what you, your husband shared, that, that's such powerful words because 
many women or people, Inez, look for things outside and that's kind of conditional and that actually doesn't make you feel good anyway. So I guess the insight was be the change, you change you and everything else will change around you. And like you're saying about confidence and and success, I guess there's that myth where people feel that success is, is finance, but actually success is something that you attract. Absolutely. People are attracted to you through that frequency. You can tell who your environment is, those that you speak with. Yeah. Those that you converse with. Absolutely. And another thing that we spoke about um, was whatever you do, it doesn't matter what job you um, are in, be the best in that job. And that will give you success in that field, in that sector. And that's something that I was... um, my mother taught me again that be the best at what you do so before I became a lawyer and and the journey is that um, I grew up in a family West Indian family where you are taught to obey your parents and even if you have an opinion that was back then in the 70s you obey your parents and I told my mom that I wanted to become a solicitor when um, I left school and that I was going to go to college and do A-level law, A-level history and I think A-level English with a view to then doing a degree. And she said, no, that's not what you're going to do. You're going to become a legal secretary. I was so disappointed. At the time, I thought that she was killing my dream because I knew what I wanted to do. And I asked her why. She always said that I was very, very inquisitive as a child. And she said that if you become a legal secretary first, do law, yes, because on the legal secretarial course, you could do two A-levels. So she said, still do A-level law, but at least you then have, it will help you with organisational skills. And if anything happens, you will always have a job to fall back on. You can go and become a legal secretary. So I did it reluctantly, um, went to Solihull College, met a number of people who were doing the legal secretarial course who also wanted to go on and become lawyers, but they weren't quite sure um, how they were going to get there. And when I... It was a two-year course... And in year two, they um, suggested that we go out and do work experience. And um, I was sent to Pinson's. It wasn't Pinson Mason's. It was Pinson & Co. um, back then. And I was temping or doing work experience um, for a partner in the construction um, department. And they were so pleased with the my typing skills, my I was doing shorthand then as well. Pitman script. Pitman script <laughs> that they offered me a job and at the t- you know, I hadn't worked before and, and it was still my dream to then go on to um, university, but because I had no money, I thought I'll accept the job. And it took some time for me to then um, go and study part time to become a lawyer. But I worked at Pinsons for two years, Rag and Co for um, two years, they're now Gowlings, and I moved to London 
at the age of 19 and um, lived in London for six years, moved back and went to Edge and Ellison, um, where I worked for, they are now Squire Patton Boggs, so all these firms. And it was whilst I was at that firm that the partner who I'd worked with at Pinson's encouraged me to go and do my law degree. She said to me, you're excellent as a legal secretary, but I can see that you are meant to do something bigger. And um, that's where the journey started or continued um, for me to become a lawyer. And you're anecdotally that when you uh, decided to uh, speak to your, was it college lecturers or one of the tutors, could you share that experience? Because I think how you navigated that was really um, powerful. So um, I was encouraged by Frances Kirkham. She later became Her Honour Judge Kirkham to go and do my um, law degree. So I um, realised that I needed to do this as a mature student because I'd bought a house, needed to pay for my mortgage, so I was going to work. Um, full-time, study part-time. I'm not going to name the university that I approached, but I went to um, one of the open days and I saw the admissions officer and she asked me what I wanted to do. And I told her that I wanted to become a solicitor. And I was so excited and, and, you know, still had in the back of my mind believe in yourself, don't let anyone cause you to deviate from your dream. And she said to me, are you sure that you want to do law? You want to study law? And I said, I'm absolutely sure. Um, Gave the reasons why I wanted to help um, clients. I loved law, um, analysing the law. And she said, well, I think that you would be better suited to become a social worker or a nurse. And I said, no, that's not what I want to do. I want to do law. And she said, no, no, I really think that that is the route that you should take. So I asked her, why are you discouraging me from law and um, pushing me um, into something that I don't want to do? And I have nothing against the, um, you know, being a nurse or even a social worker, but my heart was set on becoming a lawyer. And she said, your kind tend to do nursing or um, social working. I think that's the first time that I realised that discrimination existed because I didn't realise that I was referred to as a kind. Mm -hmm. I saw myself as um, an individual, a human being, the same as anybody else. And so I was so discouraged and disappointed by that and I left I went home um, and I spoke to Winston about it and he said well they're not the only university in the area go somewhere else and I did so I approached the University of Wolverhampton and they were so encouraging so supportive Um, And I've remained friends with the lecturers, the professors, and they helped me on my journey um, with with doing the degree. And um, when you're working full-time and studying part-time, 
it's so difficult because you do you work long hours um, and I would always work beyond 5 p.m. I wanted to make sure that everything um, was finished for my boss and in those days we had golf ball typewriters when I was a uh, secretary and you also had the carbon copy yeah. paper and uh, you had someone who was in charge of the secretaries who I referred to as the matron and she would come around and check all the typing and if there was any mistakes more than two mistakes you would be called into a room so I always wanted to make sure my filing was done and then to leave to take the train or drive to Wolverhampton was really really tiring so I think in the first year I probably for the first few months missed about four or five lectures um, and Winston said to me if you miss any more lectures I'll be taking you to university you haven't come this far to give up now so I've had the support of family friends um allies mentors throughout my entire journey and you, you so working and studying what skills did you deploy to to manage that so we know about Winston ensuring that you go to university that you miss five but did was there how did you organise your diary? What did you actually have to do? So discipline and organising the diary um, was key. But because of my organisational skills and I had to be extremely organised as a wife, you want to also make sure that you go home, you cook. So what I would do is on a Friday, I would do batch cooking. I would okay. cook so many things on a Friday, um, chicken, fish, um, beef, uh, vegetarian and put them all in containers wow, and I would yours. label them <laughs> <laughs> Monday to Friday so all the cooking was done um, cleaning you know I'd get help with that as well and then it was the homework um, studying for exams so when I when my friends were going out partying enjoying themselves going to restaurants I couldn't do any of, of that so for um, six years because it was four years to do the degree part-time and then two years for the legal practice course um, and then paying for that as well. It, it was difficult, but it was it was worth it. And I guess what you said earlier about a goal, so you knew what your ideal situation looked like and you took those incremental steps. Uh, absolutely. And what you've clearly shared with our audience as well is how you went about doing that because I think it does take a lot of organization and I'd say that that discipline is is that self-sacrifice yes you know your why yeah um and then also you taught you know so your family as well your husband everybody's involved and included so how did your you overcome the the words that were said to you about your kind from that former university so we know what you've done in terms of so there's that clear belief that that didn't stop you so has had that impacted you in a way so it's the first time that you'd experienced discrimination so what did you kind of do with that going forward um anyone who knows me um, will know that if you tell me that I can't do something, 
I will go all out to prove you wrong. That gave me a determination um, as well um, to think that, okay, I'm seen as a kind, but my kind is just as equal as you mm-hmm. and we can do everything that you can do. And in fact, I don't see myself as a kind. I see myself as part of. Mm-hmm. We are all included. And for me, that's also what has empowered me to be inclusive um, since that experience um, because so many people are excluded because of difference and I don't like that. I don't like that at all. Um, however, as a result of recognising that I'm treated different, I became self-aware that throughout my legal career, I will be treated different. And so when I um, finally got a training contract, and in, I, I believe that everything happens for a reason at the right time. And Tell I, us some, more. I sometimes <laughs> think if I'd gone to college when I wanted to, to study um, law and then become a um, solicitor or a barrister at the time, would I be the person that I am now? Would I have had the same opportunities, met the same individuals who became allies and mentors? And I don't believe I would have um, because they have come into my life at a different stage. They wouldn't have been around back then in the um, 90s. And um, so... I I can't remember the question you asked me. What yeah, was so ah, about the the, um, the 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 discouragement and what I did with that? Yeah. Um, and so I know that the studying at the time that I did and then applying for a training contract, I was fortunate that I only applied for two training contracts. Um, many students they apply for hundreds yeah. and thousands and they don't get the opportunity. But when I talk about allyship, there was a partner that I met at um, Pinsons and um, he kept encouraging me to apply to the firm that he was at. And I thought, well, I don't want anyone to do me favours. I've got to do this by myself. Um, And he said, I'm not doing you a favour. All I'm doing is um, you're using my name to say you know me at the firm, you still need to apply, you still need to do the various tests, you still need to do the essays, you still need to sell yourself at the interview. Um, And I thought, oh, okay then, that's fine, Um, because I wanted to get this on merit. So I applied to Birmingham City Council and um, they absolutely loved me. I really loved the ethos of the council and also the equity. Yes. Um, But I failed the psychometric test. So, and I think I failed it by about two points. So they said, no, um, it's policy. You have to um, pass the psychometric test. So I wasn't able to um, get into that that organisation. And then I decided to apply to my my friend's firm and... um, managed to get in and I was so excited that I was starting my journey as a um, lawyer. I was a trainee solicitor but I was the only black person in the firm 
who was training to be a lawyer and who was not in an admin or support role. Um, and what you find when you're the only one, um, they will try to encourage you to go into areas of law that you don't necessarily want to do. Um, initially, I wanted to do um, commercial law. I thought that's where all the money is. I want to work for these um, clients who've got lots of money and I'll get I'll, you know, my salary yeah. will be um, great. They were directing me into the areas which, unfortunately, people of colour tend to be directed into crime, mm -hmm. family, immigration, housing. Those are the areas um, that they tend to um, direct people of colour, but that wasn't what I wanted to do. In the end, I um, qualified into um, personal injury and medical negligence, and I've remained in medical negligence, and I absolutely love um, the combination of medicine and the law, um, working with consultants and helping um, patients who um, have experienced a medical accident. But that journey was not easy. Um, I was always told that I should do a particular or oh, go into a particular sector because I was tactful, diplomatic. Um, and I thought, well, as a business lawyer, don't you also need to apply tact and diplomacy? <laughs> I, I just don't see why um, it. you can only work in a certain sector. But again, everything happens, I believe, everything happens um, for a reason. And had I not qualified into um, medical negligence, I would not have had um, a case that changed law. So I had a Tell case... Tell us about that. <laughs> in 2010, I received a call uh, from a potential client and he explained that his father um, had... Um, what's called renal colic. It's some abdominal issue. And um, we were part of the European Union. And so doctors from Europe were able to fly in as locums and to administer um, prescriptions or various things for patients. Yeah. And what this doctor had done, he flew in from Germany and he didn't understand the English prescriptions and so his father would take 100 milligrams of pethidine 10 milligrams of dimorphine the doctor mixed up the dosage okay. and gave him 100 milligrams of dimorphine 10 milligrams of pethidine that killed him wow. within five minutes so there was going to be an inquest and um, they needed someone to represent the family at the inquest and to also investigate a medical negligence case. I realised this was going to be big. And at the time, I was an associate um, solicitor. So when my um, supervising partner returned, I explained to him, this is going to be a really big case. I really think that you should take it and I will help you. He was not interested. 
not interested at all. And in fact, said to me that I was quite naive to believe that it was going to be a big case. So I thought, okay, I will continue what I'm doing. And I got the medical records, contacted experts, instructed them. And we got positive um, reports back to say that it was negligence. And then I was contacted by The Guardian. And it was the uh, medical correspondent for The Guardian who had heard that I was doing this case and wanted to interview me because there was going to be an inquest. So I did the interview and there was an article in The Guardian about European um, doctors coming in from the EU um, not understanding the English system, Mm -hmm. having uh, not competent in English as well. And so um, I went back to my supervising partner and said, look, this is going to be a big case. I really think that you need to get involved with this. Was not interested. So the 14-day inquest um, started and um, it was in Cambridgeshire and I instructed a um, council um, and... At the end of the inquest, the coroner agreed that um, what had happened was unlawful. The um, consultant had absconded, so we couldn't um, do anything with him. But the trust that he worked for, the agency, they all admitted and paid out to the family. And the coroner reported it to the Lord Chancellor And as a result, the Lord Chancellor changed the law to say that anyone coming into the UK um, as a locum needed to be competent in English, understand the um, English prescriptions and the the medical system. And so that case has gone down in history as my case. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) And would would you believe that... At the end of the inquest, my supervising partner was there and he said, Inez, why didn't you tell me it was going to be so big? We had a press conference with over um, 30 uh, members of the press who were there, including Channel 4, ITV. Um, I went on This Morning, I went on BBC News, I went on Sky News, talking about the changes in law. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, we just have to take a moment and celebrate. But could we just unpick that where your supervisor at two different times, just for our audience in terms of the learning and maybe that insight, which is on two occasions you did correctly share that information. It wasn't heard. You pressed on. And then at the end of it, why didn't you tell me, Ines? So what actually happened with that information, just so that our audience understands and that you could just maybe share some coping strategies? Because it's evident that you, Ines, that you believe in yourself and that you were able to carry out and execute practice. And set a precedent. You know, um, but in terms of the woman there, with that comment, they may have stopped. <laughs> you with me so sometimes you have to things will happen to us um on our journey people will say things that can be extremely discouraging and hurtful and especially when you're trying to be noticed because as a young lawyer um you want to be noticed by your supervisor because 
that means there is scope for promotion. Um, but one thing that my mom always taught me is never be disrespectful mm. to people. And even if you're in the right, don't rub it in anyone's face. So I politely said to him, I did tell you on two occasions, and in fact, because I had a file, here are the emails. And then I, I walked on um, and left. And I felt really pleased that I didn't use that moment to rejoice mm. and to put anyone down. Mm. And so one thing the journey has taught me as well when I've been treated um, badly or when I've been discouraged is to learn not to do that to anyone else. So I eventually left the firm because it was a glass ceiling. I just They just um, didn't really want to promote me. Um, and I joined the firm that I'm currently at, which is Harrison Clark Rickabees. Um, and again, I was the only black person in the firm then. That was in um, January 2012. Um, and they asked me to start my own department because they didn't have a, a medical negligence department. And so many young people have joined my team who lack confidence who um, come from disadvantaged backgrounds. And I think it's really, really important that we offer a helping hand. It can't be only INES. It's got to be um, the, the legacy for me is passing or imparting my knowledge and support to those who would not have the opportunity that others have. So I've always made sure that I employ people who've got first class degrees second class but also those who have struggled and it's good to work with them nurture them and remember my journey and give them the encouragement and the support that they need to become confident and to be the best that they can be which is a great lawyer yeah you, it, that's just fantastic um Ines, in terms of that succession plan when i'm thinking about the law sector now then and your journey where the first or 2012 um, and I guess in many of the law firms that the statistics uh, may stay the static so in terms of other law firms now speaking of women speaking of women of color speaking of black women that I'm looking at a solution and where we can be offering this insight where there's lots of mentoring or you say there's a glass ceiling but can we also look at a sponsorship where there's actually a system and process in place where when there's another Ryanair's but that there's a pathway to the top or at least people can, who are joining, can have some understanding of the practice that they're not just going into a firm and there be a glass ceiling. Yeah, um, so when I qualified as a lawyer, and that was back in um, 2000, there were probably in the city about six black lawyers that I, I knew. 
um, and we would meet and we would support each other, go out for dinner um, and share. Um, but I also realised, looking at the Law Society and being a lawyer, I'm a member of the Law Society. So I was a member of Birmingham Law Society. And when I looked at the Law Society, there was no diversity at all um, at that time. And rather than sit back and just complain, I believe that the solution is to get involved, to roll your sleeves up and get involved. Absolutely. And so that's why I started to volunteer with the Law Society and I volunteered on the PR and media committee and then I um, was a volunteer for the personal injury committee. I then became the joint honorary secretary um, at the Law Society and... Um, as far as succession planning is concerned with the Law Society, they always look for a new deputy vice president around about February of each year to take on the new position in April. So you have deputy vice, you have vice president, and then you become president. And in 2018, they had no one put their name forward um, to become deputy vice president. And someone said to me, what about you? And I said, what about me? I, it, it just was not on um, my radar. And why not, Ines? Just for our viewers, because it's interesting point. <laughs> I think it wasn't on my radar because I thought that to become president, you'd have to give up a lot of your time. I was head of, of a department... Um, I was sitting on a number of boards, so I was really, really busy. Um, I was also really busy in my local community with church, and uh, one of my um, areas of expertise is also special educational needs. So I was helping a number of um, people in the community whose children had learning difficulties and doing appeals for them. So it just wasn't on my radar, mm. and I wasn't sure that my firm would even give me the time off because I thought that I would need to take a sabbatical. But then, again, with my organisational skills, I realised that I could still work and be president, but I'd have to manage my time. Could you just tell us a bit about the Law Society, just for our viewers, just so that so they understand? the Law Society is a membership organisation um, where the members are solicitors, barristers, trainees... Um, paralegals, um, anyone who practices law. So they it's not the Law Society of England and Wales, which is in London. You've got the proven provincial law societies. And so Birmingham Law Society has a membership of possibly about six to 8,000 members now. Um, and what they do is they have different committees that um, they will have chairs to help the different sectors, housing, crime, um, commercial, probate. And um, we will arrange events for the different sectors. There are legal awards. Um, you've got the president's dinner. You are conversing with civic leaders as well um, within the region. And you are basically making sure that you are engaging, you're educating your sector. So that's what the, the Law Society is. It's um, a voluntary organisation, but very, very busy. 
organisation and I was the joint honorary secretary. So I was helping to organise and keep everything together um, with the deputy vice, the vice and the president. And then you have council meetings that you attend every month that you have to do the minutes for, you have board meetings. So I, I was quite busy doing all of that. But when they asked me, what about you? And my response, because it wasn't on my radar, I just didn't think about it, but then started to think about it. And I thought, actually, I could do this. I, I really can do this but it means more of my time. Um, and I was mindful that um, as a black person as well, in order to achieve, we have to, and not just a black person, it's, it's, it's a person of colour. Okay. Um, you have to do so much more um, than your peers to just be recognised. So I was doing all of these things because I enjoyed doing them, but I also thought it would be good for my CV that eventually I would be able to... Um, I don't know what I wanted to do, but I've, I've never seen myself as just a solicitor. I think there's something bigger out there for me yeah. to do um, and to help others on their journey. And so I said yes, and... In, I started thinking about what I was going to do. This is a long answer to tell you about succession. Started thinking about what I was going to do as president in two years' time. And I came up with the initiatives, and you talk about a pathway mm -hmm. of helping others. Mm -hmm. And because of my background, um, I wanted to set up a scholarship. Mm -hmm. um, it was called um, the Diversity and Inclusion um, scheme where I was going to help um, students from disadvantaged backgrounds and underrepresented groups to access the profession. But I didn't want it to just be about money so that they, because when I did my legal practice course, it was £5,000. Back then, now it's um, anything between 11,000 to 20,000, depending on where you're from in the West Midlands, about 15,000. So I didn't want it to just be a scholarship. It had to be about mentoring, mm. include mentoring. And the mentoring would um, be to help them with letter writing skills, presentation skills, character building, interview techniques. Um, and then I thought they also need an opportunity for work experience. And not only that, it's difficult to get onto the trainee assessment days. So I wanted um, our university partners, but legal partners who would provide um, the mentoring, the work experience, and also the um, a place on their trainee assessment um, day, but not to give them a training contract because they would have to work for that. If you want something and you believe in yourself, you've got to work towards it. You cannot be handed everything on a plate. So I wanted them to um, prepare for the interviews and, and we would help them along the way. So I thought that's the first thing that I'm going to do. I also thought about the legal profession that many of my female 
colleagues, once they started a family, they left the profession because it was difficult for them to um, juggle family life and working life. And especially if you're in the commercial sector, they expect you to work really, really long hours and you can't do that um, as a female. Um, and the males, they're always, uh, we see them as the providers. So we don't expect fathers or didn't back then um, to stay at home with the children. So I thought, I'm going to start a conversation about flexible working. This was in 2018. Okay. And when I'm president, that's what we'll do. I'll start speaking to um, law firms. I'm going to talk to the managing partners about flexible working. And the thing about lawyers is we're not tr initially we were not trusted it's you've got billable hours that you need to do and I think the view was unless they could see you working you wouldn't be working mm -hmm. um, whereas I was working one day a week at home with all the things that I um, was juggling and I found that on that one day I was far more productive than when I was in the office so wanted to start that conversation and to also introduce um, all law and technology um, lawyers we are dinosaurs we <laughs> love love paper books but we don't really embrace technology. And so I thought that was really, really important that we did that. So those were my three initiatives. And when I shared it with my think tank, um, I remember in January 2020, before the pandemic, a few of the past presidents met with me to manage my expectations. Okay. And they thought that my initiatives were a bit too ambitious. Um, there were three big initiatives. And when I look back, they actually were three big initiatives. Um, but I knew that they were possible. You've just got to speak to the right people. Um, and, you know, they didn't want me to be disappointed. So they said, you know, even if you concentrate on just one, um, you know, that would be an achievement I thanked them for for their advice and said that I would go home and, and think about their advice. As I walked through the door, I thought, mm -mm, I am <laughs> doing what I said I was going to do. Um, the pandemic was then in March 2020, and I was so despondent. I thought, you know, my presidential year which was to start in April mm -hmm. um, 2020 was just going to be a write-off I would not be able to achieve anything because we were all working from home um, and Winston said but you've got your flexible working initiative in place already <laughs> because everybody's working from home. Winston's so you just need to continue that conversation yeah. because we knew that it was going to be temporary. And um, one of the things that one of the past presidents said was you are five or ten years too early. The legal profession is not going to um, want to start a conversation on flexible working 
because of the pandemic, the whole world was working um, from home and it worked really well. Um, and so I was able to continue that discussion with the managing partners. And now we have smart working, flexible working in place permanently Ooh. and it's working well. Law and technology, as a result of the pandemic, the um, technology was really, really important. And we had to learn how to do these virtual meetings and um, working electronically, all our files had to now be stored electronically. So I decided to use that as the foundation to then start a committee. And we now have a law and technology committee in place. The scholarship, I just didn't know how that was going to work. And then George Floyd's death or murder happened in May um, 2020. As a result of that, the entire world was talking about equity, inclusion, um, diversity. So I approached universities at that time and I was so pleased that University of Law and University of Wolverhampton agreed to provide scholarships to um, students and I approached my firm who um, signed up to mentoring work experience and also Pinsent Masons and Gately Legal and that's where the scheme started and we have helped a number of students because only two students are awarded the scholarship okay. but the amount of students that we mentor so we interview them and we can see the potential so we provide the mentoring to them anyway we try and um, obtain work experience so it's much bigger than the scholarship um, we are now three years into the scheme and I've just handed over the baton to um, the Social Mobility Committee um, at the Law Society. So that has been my um, pathway um, of ensuring that there is not just one of me, but there are many and that succession planning will take place. Succession planning is so key. Um, and it's important and I continue to look at succession planning in my um, team because I know that I will not be a lawyer forever and in fact um, I seem to be um, moving in a different direction now as well as a result of everything that I achieved as president in fact I had such a wide reach on a virtual platform that we were able to do 64 events um, wow. as a law society for the um, sector. Wow. Um, I also mentioned charity. I, I love supporting charities. It's so important to give back. It can't just be about me and my aspirations and my success. I have to look at people around me who are, um, you know, won't have the same opportunities as me. So I, I'm currently a trustee for the um, Child Brain Injury Trust. And what they do is they provide um, support to young people and families who have an acquired brain injury. And I've worked with them for a number of years and they were my chosen charity um, when I was president. But I thought, how am I going to raise money during the pandemic? So many charities went out of business and... Um, I thought long and hard and I thought, I know what, I'm going to do an evening with the president of Birmingham Law Society. I'm going to interview um, some celebrities or dignitaries. 
um, had no idea how I was going to do this. And um, on LinkedIn, I noticed an article from um, Cherie Blair, and she was talking about um, helping um, women in developing countries with um, enterprises and helping them to become entrepreneurial. And so I um, liked her article, commented on it, and sent her a private message and said, actually, I'm president of Birmingham Law Society. I'd love to interview you to raise money for charity. And I promise I will only interview you and I won't ask you any questions about Tony Blair. <laughs> and she responded and said, here's my private secretary's number, contact her. So I contacted her and I, I sent a, a letter explaining what I was doing, um, the difficulties that I was experiencing um, because of lockdown. And she agreed. So I was so <laughs> surprised that I bought her book and I listened to every podcast um, that Sharia had done and so the first evening with was in January 2021 mm -hmm. and we charged non-members 15 pounds members of the law society 10 and students five I raised for um that event I think it was just under five thousand pounds that is wonderful and I thought this is wow. fantastic so I then um, reached out to um, Stuart Lawrence because I knew that they were starting their first Stephen Lawrence Day in April and I couldn't get a response and I know how busy Stuart is. Mm. And um, I sent emails, I um, tried to phone um, the foundation, but he I just couldn't get him. And his PA finally contacted me and apologised for the delay and said that Stephen was, uh, Stuart was busy preparing for Stephen Lawrence Day on the 21st of April. Um, but he would be happy to do an interview in October 2021. And I said, well, that's not going to work for me because my term comes to an end in September 21. Um, and I said, okay, but wish Stephen, uh, Stephen, wish Stuart, Stuart the best for me. I noticed that he's got a book launch that is taking place in, I think it was June. And I said, or oh, no, it was May. I said to her, it's really unfortunate because um, if he did, <laughs> if he was able to do the interview, Tactical. he would have an audience <laughs> yeah, yeah, of yeah. 6,000 people wow. that he could sell his book to. And the book was about his mother's journey, um, trying to secure justice for Stephen Lawrence's death and also how it affected the family. Um, and I said, but don't worry, I, I, I completely understand that, um, <laughs> that he, he can't do it. I then got an email <laughs> <laughs> later so that, that evening saying, you've got Stuart's attention. <laughs> so, so in business. <laughs> no. <laughs> he did the interview. I was able to interview him. And again, I read every article that I could find. Um, I watched the Stephen Lawrence story and then I, I interviewed him. And... Um, I think we had probably about 600 people wow. sign up for both of the interviews and again raised just under £5,000. At the end of my term, I managed to um, raise with different events that I did for 
um, the charity £22,500 oh, during wow. lockdown. And that is just wonderful. It was so it really is a good that we were able to do that and we were able to employ um, a family liaison officer that um, would go into one of the hospitals, the acute hospitals, to help these families when their children and young people go in with an, a brain injury. And for me, it's about making a difference. And I continue to support the Child Brain Injury Trust. And I was telling you that I um, I injured my knee in um, June because um, we went away for our anniversary and did a lot of walking, did cycling. Then I returned and did the uh, Mulvan, he Mulvan Hills trek where we did five peaks, um, raising money for Asthma UK. Um, and it was too much for me and I, I injured both knees. Um, but then thought, as a woman, we push through pain, we're able to continue and persevere. And on the Friday, there was a charity sports day for the Child Brain Injury Trust, and I took part in that, doing the sack race, the wow. relay, penalty um, shootout, did all of that, but completely shot my knee. So my left knee um, is back to normal, but I'm having to have physio. Um, for the right knee but again I will do anything that I can help um, to raise money for charity. Inez your journey and I think what's been really powerful about today that you've been able to demonstrate what you've been able to employ to enable others to encourage, aspire, develop themselves and indeed believe in themselves. You're a powerful role model. And is there any final closing uh, statements that you would want to share with any of our viewers who are watching or listening? Um, as a result of uh, my achievements with the Law Society, I was approached by the Institute of Directors to become the West Midlands Regional Chair um, and governance is really, really important for me um, because I sit on a number of boards um, helping businesses to run their and govern their business well. And so the Institute of Directors, what they do resonated um, with me in helping businesses with their governance. Um, as a result of that, I was able to organise a um, Commonwealth Business Conference in July this year and we invited in um, dignitaries, Tanny Gray Thompson, who is a Paralympian, Jeff Thompson, former Olympian, karate champion, Andy Street. We had Ian Ward, the leader of the council, um, Lord Rami Ranger, Baroness Patricia Scotland, should have attended but was unable to attend, Matt Hammond from PricewaterhouseCooper, that we could encourage businesses as a result of that, I was asked to be part of the um, Youth Legacy um, project that's set up by um, Jeff Thompson uh, because so many young people are getting in trouble because they don't have access to sport, they don't yes. have access to education. So I was able to sign that charter yesterday and still get involved and give back. One thing I would say to anyone listening... It's not about you or me. It's about us believing in ourselves, aspiring, but what can we do for others? It's about giving back. 
and making sure that there is a community behind us who see someone who looks like us, who comes from where we have come from and can um, aspire as well. And I just want to leave um, our listeners with a thought from um, Nelson Mandela. I think he's abs- he was an absolutely inspirational speaker. And um, one of his quotes is, action without vision is only passing time. Vision without action is merely dreaming. But vision with action can change the world. And we can change the world and we can make this world a better place for all. That was amazing touch. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) That's it for this episode. And thank you so much for listening. I hope you found this episode inspiring. So please do follow, download and review this podcast which helps us to expand our reach. I would love you to help us to reach more listeners by taking a screenshot and tagging us on your socials. And you can find links to all my social media in the show notes. Until next time, when I'll be joined by another incredible guest, take care until we connect again. And most importantly, take action.